Good evening. I'm Molly Rosenberg. I'm the Director of the Royal Society of Literature, uh, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this evening's event. We're very pleased to be partnering with the LSE on tonight's discussion of literature and poverty, especially in the lead-up to the Beverage 2.0 Festival next week. I'd also like to um, give a special thanks to the Royal Literary Fund for sponsoring the event this evening, and I think Eileen Gunn from the RLF is here this evening, so thank you, Eileen. Before I introduce our chair for this evening, um, I'd just like to announce a change to the billing. Um, Unfortunately, Kerry Hudson isn't able to be here this evening due to ill health, but Paul McVeigh has heroically stepped in at the final minute. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So thank you very much, Paul, and we hope that Kerry feels better soon. Our chair this evening is Sarah Shaffey. Uh, Sarah is a freelance journalist. She writes about books for Stylist magazine. She's editor-at-large for the independent publisher Little Tiger UK and co-founder of Bayman Publishing. So I'll hand over to Sarah now. Thank you. Um, can everyone hear me? Yes? Yes. Um, so hello, and I echo Molly. Welcome to this evening's event, which is part of LSE's Beverage 2.0 series, Rethinking the Welfare State for the 21st Century and for a Global Context. Um, So I'm Sarah, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I'll be helping to guide tonight's discussion where our panellists, who I'll introduce properly in a moment, will be exploring the relationship between literature and poverty. If you are tweeting, the hashtag is LSEBeverage. Um, I would ask you to please put your phones on silent. Um, And the event is being recorded, and we hope that there'll be a podcast made available, hopefully if there aren't any technical difficulties. Um, And there will be... I always like to warn people at the beginning, there will be a chance for audience questions um, for the last half hour or so, so please do get your thinking caps on. So now on to our panellists. First up, we have Kit DeWald. She was born in Birmingham to an Irish mother who was a foster carer and a Caribbean father. Um, Kit worked for 15 years in criminal and family law, was a magistrate for several years and sits on adoption panels. She used to advise social services on the care of foster children and has written training manuals on adoption and foster care. Um, And her writing has received numerous awards, including for her first novel, My Name is Leon, which you will hear a bit from later. Um, Her second novel, The Trick to Time, is out next month, so do run out to your local bookshop for that one. Um, Next up is our hero, Paul McVeigh, as he was described earlier. (laughs) Um, He was born in Belfast. He began his career as a playwright before moving to London where he wrote comedy shows which were performed at the Edinburgh Festival and on the West End. Um, Moving into prose, his short stories have been published in anthologies and literary journals and read on the radio. Um, He co-founded the London Short Story Festival and is Associate Director at Word Factory. And his debut novel, The Good Son, won the Polari Prize and the McCrea Literary Award. And last but not least is Aaron Reeves, Associate Professorial... That's a tongue twister of a word. Uh, Let me try that again. Associate Professorial Research Fellow in the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE... Um, His research is focused on understanding the causes and consequences of social, economic and cultural inequality across countries. Um, He is a sociologist with interest in public health, culture um, and political economy, examining inequality through a number of different lenses and using a variety of methods. So welcome to all of you. Um, So the first thing that 
I wanted to do uh, in an event titled Can Literature Solve Poverty was to define what we mean by literature. What are, what are we talking about when we talk about literature? So Kit, what, what for you does literature mean? I think in the context of this discussion, you're probably talking about um, printed um, fiction, um, the canon and beyond the ca- canon, contemporary literature. Um, of course, literature is, um, you know, it's, it's a much wider thing if you're a um, working class person because you will, exp- you know, you will read graphic novels or comics or newspapers. Um, but I think in the context that we're talking about... Excuse me, I can't hear the word. Oh, Sorry. Uh, I think the context uh, that you're talking about is that is, you're talking about fiction. You're talking about literary, not literary fiction, but um, books that are available, either the canon or contemporary literature. Um, but of course, uh, literature is truly more than that. It's uh, graphic novels, comics, newspapers. Um, but I think if you're talking about literature, you talk in this context, it's fiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um- I thought it was interesting you said that it's more than literary fiction because I think sometimes when we say the word literature, I think the connotation is that we are talking about literary fiction, highbrow fiction. I wondered if either of you wanted to kind of chime in on that. And... Well, yeah, I mean, I know when um, I was um, a boy, and, um, you know, when you, you just you read books, you know, you, did, you didn't consider it literature. It was, you know, it was only later in life that, you know, it was... An, when I heard the, the term literature, that it was, for me, it really was something, it, it was just something to study. You know, what are you going to study? You're going to study literature, rather than it really feeling that that was any ownership over books for me, you know. And so it's quite interesting how um, certain um, authors then in my mind straddle uh, commercially uh, and, and what is conceived as kind of, you know, prize-winning literature, you know. And, and I think it's quite an interesting um, uh, debate around what what does actually make something um, literature worthy, prize worthy, for example, and it's quite often uh, those categories when it comes to prizes, uh, uh, reviewers that they label a book. Um, I mean, my my book has won literary prizes, but I don't I don't consider it uh, to be for you know literature in a sense. Like, you know, I just think it's a book that's written for people to read and uh, for working class people to read. Um, it's about them, but I hope that it's open uh, enough to include themes that are human, uh, so that they connect with with other people uh, on that level. So, I do think it's something that we impose on. Uh, to categorise them because we just we're not comfortable with things not being in boxes or without a label on it. Mm-hmm. And Aaron, what about you? So, in your research, do you talk to people about literature, or do you talk to people about books, or do you talk more yeah. widely in terms of the so arts? Most of, most of the the work that that I've done uses some of the the data that's been collected around cultural participation more broadly, and almost always the types of uh, the types of books that are included are, are things from the canon. So when you know the kind of Department for Culture, Media and Sport kind of ask questions of people about their participation in certain cultural activities, the things that they're interested in are these types of things. And, and I think what's happening, at least in the social sciences, is really a shift around what types of participation count in terms of our cultural engagement. What types of uh, narratives, what types of stories count as, 
participation in that type of literary form. And I think there's a recognition that everyday participation in that is much more uh, broad, much uh, more deeply ingrained into the habits of, of how people live their lives outside of these quite narrow, somewhat rigid definitions that have been used in the large kind of quantitative surveys that are collected. So I think, it, I think this sort of problematizing of that category is really helpful, particularly if we're thinking about who is engaging with which forms of storytelling. Mm. And if, if you asked um, a lot of people if they read literature, that question itself and that phrasing immediately puts distance between reading for pleasure mm. or whether or not I read a book or do I read literature. It's, it's already making a value judgment mm. about what sort of things you read, just that word literature, because there's lots of people that read that would say, I read books, and that literature is somehow taking uh, it away from books and bringing it into a much uh, you know, narrower band of reading. In other words, we're talking about literary fiction or we're talking about the canon, mm. and that's different to saying do you read books. Mm. Um, So you wrote something at the weekend for The Guardian and I wanted to pick up on something you said about what you read when you were younger and and Paul, you just mentioned as well, kind of reading when you were younger. How did you you all access literature when you were younger or books and what what were you reading? Um, I was only reading at school. So there there were two books, two classics in my house. One was The News of the World and the other one was the Bible, and that was the printed matter in the house. Um, So anything that I read, um, I read at school, and that was, you know, reading in rote around the the classroom, and that was obviously the classics, and I found it extremely boring. Um, I I, I wasn't engaged with the story um, because it was too slow, Um, and it was forced on me. I had no sort of sense of... uh, And also, these were not books that were unpicked, this was reading, that's, that's, that's what it was, so that we could get to the end of the book and then we'd answer some questions in an essay. So my experience of literature was um, grim. Mm. I didn't enjoy it, I didn't like it, and it was something confined to the classroom. Certainly nothing in my house, in my personal life, was about reading apart from, from the, the Bible, which, which of course is literature and is um, some parts very beautifully written. Well, I didn't. Um, I, I think it is a class thing as well. I mean, you know, we didn't have books in our house at all when I was growing up. And, um, you know, my mum, I mean, my mum sort of insinuated it was close to devil worship, you know. I mean, she just, she just thought books were a kind of, you know, what are you doing reading a book? I remember my brother beating me up one day when he saw me find me reading a book. He just thought there was something about it that frightened them, you know, that, that it was intimidating, it was... It was seen almost as a betrayal as well, I think. You're getting above yourself. Yeah, getting above yourself and, you know, you're betraying our people. I think there's something in the Irish tradition as well where we're oral storytellers, and I think that's an interesting thing that because when we think of um, literature, we think of the written word, and I wonder... You know, can you call the spoken word uh, literature as well? That, you know, if it's not written down, it, does it exist, you know? Um, yeah, but, I mean, the Odyssey started as... Mm. oral storytelling yeah. so and I was about to say that culturally I think work, in working class communities yeah. oral storytelling does often play 
a big it's part. Huge. I mean, and, and, and Northern Ireland, I mean, I think in our Irish culture anyway, but I mean, when you greet someone in, our, in Northern Ireland anyway, we, they probably have an equivalent down south, you know, you say, what's the crack? Mm-hmm. Right, what, what that actually means is very subtle. What it says is, tell me something that happened to you and make it interesting. <laughs> you know, so because true. crack is funny. Crack is quirky. Crack is, you know, give me some of your spiel. You know, perform for me. Give me a story and make it entertaining for me. So that's what you basically say as a greeting. Hey, what's the crack? Come on, bring it. What have you got? And um, so we have that culture. So there's this kind of almost um, from, from growing up, this, this desire to, to spin. And you spin out stories and your life is a story. And I think, there's, and I think it's quite devalued. Um, in, 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 in modern society, actually, you know, the, the whole spoken uh, tradition. And, um, and, I mean, just, I know I sort of went off a wee bit there, but, but to go back to a little bit to when I was a kid, I mean, when, um, so I, I read in school, that was the only time, but, you know, I mean, I, I would, um, you know, uh, get books like, um, you know, Ursula Le Guin, and I mean, I was really big into, and like a Boise, you know, uh, Tolkien and all that, and, and I, I, I found Dickens, you know, you know and, and in my school, I mean, you know, again, you know, no, I was the only person that would get books out of the, out of the sort of school library, you know, and, um, and then after school, when I went to secondary school, it was, a, it was our local library, Ardoin Library, and, um, you know, it was a very dangerous place to go. It was, it was dangerous, I mean, physically dangerous place to go, because it was on the corner of um, two Protestant areas, one, one where which is Shankle Road, which was where the Shankle butchers were, where they literally butchers because they chopped up Catholics like me, you know. So you, you had to go there to get a book, you know, and I did it every day. And it was also a place, it's a place where working class children can access books, you know, when, the, when their parents aren't buying them and, then they're, they're, and it's not part of the culture to have them at home. Um, you know, it's... Uh, and the schools that you tend to be going to as a working-class kids, we didn't even do O-levels. We weren't even allowed to do those exams, you know. Um, we were just supposed to be stupid, you know. And um, so that w- those were the only places. And God help us that, 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 that libraries are, you know, being kind of up- uprooted um, like they're weeds, you know, to be thrown out of the out of the garden because those 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 saved they, libraries saved my life, you know. And I don't know what working class kids are going to do now, and how what kind of access they're going to be able to have to, to books at all. It's 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 heartbreaking. So so on that with because I I was going to mention libraries are crucial for absolutely for people that can't afford to go out and buy new books every single every single week. I mean. Uh, is kind of literature and the arts, and I don't know, if Aaron, if you can talk a bit about this, one of the first things to be sacrificed when we're looking to cut things, and, mm. and do we need to be doing more to say that literature and the arts are essential and not luxuries or kind yeah. of frivolous pastimes? I, I think there's two... I hear two parts to that mm. uh, question, so I'll try and sort of touch on both, maybe. One is in terms of... Where, where, where we've seen maybe funding cuts recently. So in terms of we are seeing, uh, we have seen, I should say, pressures placed on uh, the economy which have meant that uh, governments have been making decisions around how to deal with some of those pressures. And it, and it seems to me at least that some of those um, reductions in spending have come uh, at the expense of the arts 
that they have been levied pretty heavily in that area, probably with some recognition that, or ambivalence perhaps about the role of of the state playing in, in, in shaping taste and culture, partly for some of the problematic things that we spoke about earlier. You know, who gets to define uh, the canon? And I think there's a, a reticence to some extent to be now involved in some of that to some extent. But there's another part which is about on the individual level, for people themselves. And what I think incredibly striking about that is I think you can cut this down into two different ways. You can look at reading and writing, and reading, there is a very clear kind of social gradient by income by the amount that people read. Pretty, it's pretty strong. It's pretty flat. I mean, as a kind of straight line. That is, as people have more income, they tend to read more. You know, they report reading more regularly and they, they read more often. But when it comes to writing, that's not true. That actually there's a, almost regardless of the income level, uh, the numbers of people that report writing stories and writing po- and writing poetry is roughly about 8 7% across the income distribution. Now, that's really striking, I think. Yeah. So what it suggests, suggests to me, at least, is that there is this kind of uh, group of people across society who are feeling this uh, desire, this impetus, to communicate through the written word. Um, and those levels are much lower than the reading levels across, you know, fewer people write than read across the whole income distribution. But there is pretty flat. And I, and I find that really striking. Mm. That it seems to me, at least, so just kind of on reflecting on that, it does seem that, that perhaps when financial pressures come in, that people are both perhaps because of time constraints, but maybe other reasons, making choices around how they spend some of their spare time around reading. But that doesn't seem to apply to writing as much. Okay. And I think that's quite striking. That's really interesting. So, so on on that point of uh, people still continue to write, one thing we we don't see is working class writers being published at the same rate as say middle class writers. And I think there are some there are some stats available about how forty seven percent of authors, writers, and translators hail from professional middle class backgrounds, compared with just. 10% of those with parents in routine or manual labour, which was a, a stat kit you quoted recently. Um, so for, for Kit and Paul, what were your experiences of, of getting your books published? Was, do you think you had different experiences to somebody you know, of, a similar, of a similar age and, and other things, but just from a middle-class background? Um. I had a relatively easy route to publication, so I don't think I'm typical Mm. of uh, a lot of working-class writers. What I did find, and what I do find, is that working-class writers that I speak to um, talk particularly about some of the content of their book, um, not chiming with the uh, people in the industry. So my book did, for whatever reason, and um, uh, the people I spoke to in the industry... um, understood the book and understood what I was saying but what I hear over and over again and I speak to a lot of working class writers is that particularly if they're talking about their story or their experience or a very working class experience is that it's not finding 
uh, agents, it's not finding people within the industry that recognise that as a valid story. So that's very often why they're not getting published. Um, I, I can't talk about the merits of the writing, but I can certainly talk about what people say about whether or not the industry embraces working-class stories or embraces working-class writers the, in, uh, in the same volume that embraces a, a story about middle classes or a middle-class uh, writer writing about their own experience. Um, my own experience was that I had an agent and... My agent, who's in the audience, obviously did a very good job. And she got at the back. Um, How did you get an agent? How did you know to get an agent? I didn't know to get an agent. And when I started writing, I was 45 when I started writing at all. And I had no knowledge whatsoever about the industry. No knowledge. I thought that you wrote a book, you sent it off to somebody like Penguin. They put a jacket on and put it in Waterstones. I didn't know there were all these different... Uh, roots, and I didn't know there was any kind of gatekeeping going on. Um, and I had to learn that, and I, I learned that by doing a lot of research and uh, talking to people and reading about it. But certainly, the route to publication and the various stages and the various steps was completely unknown to me. And it's unknown to a lot of people that write. You speak about, you know, all those people that write. Many of those people will not know uh, how to navigate the industry and there is a very clear path in the industry and if you take that path you are more likely to get published than if you uh, have no knowledge of it and have to learn it on the hoof and Paul what about you what do, um, does what Kit say about kind of people looking at the content of your work and chime with you and kind of not necessarily yeah I mean I don't I mean I didn't have a particularly hard um, journey either, but um, I did. I mean, you know, getting um, the the bigger publishers, the bigger publishing houses, interested in my book was wasn't easy. And you know, in fact, I, the book ended up going with to, to a, um, a very you know very good um, sort of in, independent uh, publisher called Salt. And um, you know, but the, the repercussions are that you, you get much less money and uh, and and they don't have a massive team of people to market it and do all of those kind of jobs well so you have less of a chance of making a splash and and to get to people for people to know that your book exists or even booksellers to I mean I similarly there was a lot of naivety with me I mean you know I just assumed that when you got a book a bookshop you stopped it it doesn't happen, you know. Um, you know, it's down to things like, you know, you go into Waterstones and that there's books on a table, you know, the publishers are paid for it to be on that table. If there was a book turned that way on the shelf, the publishers paid for it to be turned that way on the shelf. I mean, all these things you're going to hear saying, say what? You know, so I go and turn my own, right? Like, I, <laughs> I was about to say, put a couple on the table. Yeah. Um, if I'm lucky enough to see them in there, you know, in the first place. But, you know, um, but, you know that, that's the way it works, you know. But if you come out with a big publisher, you're, you know, you're going to go in with their stack of... Uh, uh, other books that they've got released, but I would say just just to sort of wind back in the kind of um, sort of the timeline of a, of a working class writer. Actually, um, it's it's I don't think it's a coincidence that um, uh, uh, Kit and I have our novels out later in life. I'd say that that is actually one of the major. Uh, factors um, is that you know we for, for a number of reasons don't feel that. Um, that you say that um, it's the same uh, along the percentage of uh, working class uh, writers as middle class writers or whatever but um, you know they tend to come much out much later than life and I'd say there's a number of reasons for that and it's partly confidence 
Uh, you're not ever told that you have a seat at the table. You know, it's, it's a, you may write at home, you may write for your own pleasure, but seeing that as a profession is something completely different. And, um, and certainly that kept, away, kept me away from uh, writing prose, certainly, anyway. And, um, and I th- so I think that, that there, there's that. I think also that the pressure for you to go out and get proper job mm-hmm. from your parents, you know, because you're often supporting your family... Um, in a way that's different for middle-class, uh, um, I think, families who, whose parents are supporting their children. It's quite, not, quite often not the case. You, you're expected to come out and help support your parents and, and, and your larger family. But you tend to have larger families. You tend to have... Oh, there's so many... Th- poor education. Um, all, of, all of those other things are, are, are affecting you long before you ever get to the point you think you'll ever dare to dream yeah. To put that book out and say I am worthy of you reading this because I have any kind of agency um, in the world, never mind in the world of literature, which is you know seen as so as elitist, um, uh, just just one of the areas of our society is seen that way. I mean, you mentioned um, the pressure to earn. So in 2013, which I think are the last kind of stats available, the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society found that the average author salary was £11,000 a year. So, I mean, that's, I, I guess that's not a viable career option for people from working-class families when you ha- take all the other parts of their life into context. It's another reason you may not start uh, writing until you're older because yeah. there's much more pressure on you uh, when you're trying to establish your home and everything. And it may be that... Uh, also. As, as Paul says, there is this sense, if you're a writer, that time's running out and you just think, I've got to do it now. I've got to take it seriously. But that does not mean that you're going to be able... And this is across the board. This is not just talking about working-class writers. Across the board, that's the uh, average salary. Um, but it just means that if that's your only income, you'll go, well, you, you, it can't be your only income. You've got to go and do something else. And that's uh, obviously going to have a disproportionate effect on a working-class writer um, because... There, there is no safety net. There is no, you know, you still may be paying a mortgage, you may be paying rent, you're probably paying rent. You may, and like you say, uh, uh, supporting other areas of, of your family. So it's, um, it's, it's a very um, difficult thing when you want to be a writer and you realise that it's unlikely that that's going to be your only job. Um, Can I just... No, no, go so so one, of the, one of the pieces of work that I've been involved in recently has been to... To, uh, we managed to get access to the entire catalogue of, of who's who, you know, this kind of dictionary of, of influential Brit people in, in British society. Uh, and what we can do is, is track these people by the schools that they went to. And so what I, what I kind of looked at, I, I did this just for uh, coming to today, so I wanted to kind of share it because I think it's fascinating, at least to me. Uh, was the, so, so we can look at, for instance, nine schools the Clarendon schools, so Eton, Rugby, Harrow, Winchester, these, these big schools. And when we look at the people that report being a novelist or a poet in Who's Who as the reason that they're in that book, almost 12% of the people in, in Who's Who that are novelists report going to one of those schools. Now, just to realise how staggering that is, you know, these schools uh, educate less than about, well, it's about 0.5% of the British population, and yet 12% of them are managing to become novelists and poets. 50% of them went to private schools. 44% of them went to Oxbridge. I mean, this is a really staggering level of uh, kind of 
a, a staggering level of disadvantage that gets reproduced in whose stories get told. Now, it's difficult to pass why this happens, but certainly the ones that get recognized in this volume almost invariably come from very middle-class backgrounds. And so somewhere along the line, these working-class writers are being perhaps... Filtered out. Being filtered out. Well, yeah. I wonder if that, what Paul said about not, not realising that he could have a seat at the table Sorry. because those people have a seat at the table and then people at, you know, at those schools yeah. see that... And, it, and the circle kind of just continues. And, and it's the same for editors. So when yes. you look at writers and then the editors, these, these percentages are almost exactly matched for, for editors too. I was going to say that writing is only half of the story mm. because anybody can write, but who gets published is not... It's not up to me and Paul if we get published or not. That's up to a completely different set of people. Mm. Uh, the publishing industry made up of editors and agents and lots of other people. And... That um, statistic about how many people write is certainly not reproduced in who gets published, and that's what's important, and that will perpetuate all the time because those stories that get published are going to reflect the lives of the people that have written them. Mm -hmm. So everything I write is is influenced and uh, informed by my own life experience, which certainly hasn't been eaten. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's... It informs who reads it and who likes it and who's attracted by the content and attracted by the references. Um, and so it becomes a sort of world of its own. Mm. People speaking almost in code to one another. And then if you're, you've got a different story, you've got a different narrative, you've got different cultural references, they may not be recognised. Sometimes they are. I think in my case I was fortunate. Sometimes they're not recognised and they're pushed to one side in favour of the things that as individuals we find easier to relate to. So, you know, if you're a middle-class person, you might find it easier to relate to the content of some novels and not to, some, to others. Um, so I'd like to pick up on that point a little more, but I wonder if we could hear a bit from both of your books first. So, Kit, if you want to... Do you want read, me to go and stand up there? It is however you are comfortable. I'll stand up there. Then I won't crouch forward. Oh, well done, yeah. So I'm going... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to read um, a chapter where this little boy, Leon, has woken up in a foster home. It's the first time he's been in this house. And what you need to know for the purposes of this chapter is that the zebra is a social worker. Maureen is the foster carer. Leon is the child. And Jake is his brother. In the morning... Leon opens his eyes and listens. He can't hear Jake crying. Then he remembers. He's in the foster lady's house. Last night, when they arrived with the zebra, the lady came to the door, took Jake, and kissed him, even though she'd never met him before. Bless, she said. The lady steered Leon towards telly room and told him to sit down. Watch what you like, love, she said. But there was only the news on. He could hear the zebra in the kitchen. And even though half of him didn't want to, he had to listen. The zebra was talking in a loud whisper. He's been the carer, baby and mother, yes, both of them, malnourished, failure to thrive, drug dependency, ambulance. All the time, the foster lady was saying, hmm, I see. And the zebra kept going on and on. Breakdown, emergency placement, court order, squalor, state of the place. And then, right in the middle of a sentence, 
The lady told the zebra to go home. He heard the front door open and heard her saying, Yes, Judy, all right, yeah, thanks, off you go, yeah, bye, love, yeah, we'll do that tomorrow, see you, all right, bye. The lady had given him a jammy dodger, a biscuit from a golden tin, and asked him if he wanted another one. So Leon had three altogether with some hot chocolate, and then he went to bed. The smell of breakfast fills Leon's nose and cramps his belly. He doesn't want to make any noise because Jake is still asleep. He must be asleep because he's not crying. Leon is in a soft, warm bed and there are black and white footballs on his quilt. Wooden aeroplanes hang off the ceiling and turn in a cool breeze from the open window. Even the curtains have got a football pattern on them. The smell of food is so strong, it pulls Leon downstairs. He can hear the lady singing a nursery rhyme and Jake is laughing. He can hear plates and knives and forks clattering against each other. He tiptoes to the door of the kitchen and listens outside, but the lady must have heard him. In you come, sleepyhead, bacon sarnie with red sauce, all you can eat. Leon sits at the yellow kitchen table and the lady puts a massive bacon sandwich on the plate and cuts it in half. Then she plonks the red sauce bottle down next to him and says, Tuck in, sweetheart. Jake is wearing a bib with a dinosaur on it and he looks clean and he looks fresh, sitting in a high chair by the window and the lady goes over to him and starts pointing at things in the front garden. Bird, she says. Bird, lovely little bird. She keeps talking to Jake and he's trying to talk back so Leon can eat his sandwich in peace. It tastes like the best thing in the world. Soft bread, lots of meat and the sauce that drips onto the plate and he's got an enormous glass of orange juice which tastes sweeter than Coke. He has a bite of the salty meat, a swig of the orange juice and he keeps doing it until everything is gone. Then the lady just puts another sandwich on his plate. Growing boy, she says, but you can't eat all of that. But Leon does, with another glass of orange juice. Though during the second sandwich, he pays attention to the lady and what she's saying. He's waiting for her to ask questions about his mum. Now, she says, not everyone will be able to see the resemblance between you two folding her arms over her big chest. But Maureen can. She smiles and points to her forehead. That's me, Maureen, and I've got an eye for kids. Leon licks the sauce off his fingers and looks around. Maureen's house smells of sweets and toast, and when she stands near the kitchen window, with the sun behind her, her fuzzy red hairstyle looks like a flaming halo. So, you're nine says Maureen, taking his place and filling his glass up with orange juice again. Leon nods. And he's nearly five months. Leon nods. And you're the quiet one? Yes. But he's the boss. She smiles, so Leon smiles back. I get the picture, she says. I bet he's had you up and down like a yo-yo. He'd be giving you orders if he could speak, wouldn't he? So, what's his routine then, she asks. And she sits down opposite him at the yellow table. She picks up a pad and a pencil and writes Jake at the top of the page. You tell me what he likes and doesn't like, so I don't get it wrong. He gets up too early, says Leon. She writes it down. And if I'm having something to eat and he wants it, he has to have a bit, but only if it's good for him because sometimes it's chewing gum. 
No chewing gum, she writes down. He likes the pink panther, but he doesn't understand it, but I do, so I have to tell him what's going on. Pink panther with Leon, she says, and writes it down. When you put his top on, if it gets stuck, he goes mad and starts crying, and then you can't get it on him at all, so you have to wait until he's forgotten. But sometimes, if you have to put him in the pram, uh, you can't wait, so that you have to just... Leon doesn't know if he should tell her all the times when he loses his temper with Jake and shouts at him. You have to tell him to be quiet? Yes, says Leon. I get the picture, she says, and she writes down, pest. (laughs) Leon tells her everything. How if you want Jake to go asleep, you have to keep stroking his head or the side of his cheek. How Jake puts everything in his mouth and you have to keep both your eyes on him all the time. And eventually, when Maureen has two pages of writing, she sits back in her chair. Thanks, love. You've been really helpful. I might ask you one or two things as we go along, but I think I've got the basics. Now, what I'd like you to do is leave me to see if I can manage with his nibs while you go off and have a bath. She takes Jake out of his high chair and kisses him again. What a pair of eyes. She turns Jake round so Leon can see his face. He wants to say, thank you, Leon, love. Thank you for looking after me so well. That's what he'd say if he could speak. Hello. Um, I'm not going to read you a bit from my book because I'm contrary like that. And but I've found these two little pieces that um, became bits of my book. So you know when you're trying to find the voice of your character and putting up scenarios. And when I did one of these, I found the end for my book. So there are two two little short uh, uh, pieces. One um, uh, a wee bit. Um, happier than the other. So I'll start with the the bit that isn't so happy and then I'll leave you with a wee bit of a giggle. All right, okay. Um, This is called My Aunt Maggie. My Aunt Maggie's house smells and her breath does too. Her biscuits are always soggy and they're never chocolate and that's because she's poor. She's poorer than Colin Mulvena in my class at school who only ever has sugar sandwiches for his lunch every day. My Aunt Maggie always has bruises and that's because she never does anything right. That's what my Uncle Malachi says. But my Uncle Malachi doesn't know anything. My Aunt Maggie is the best. She sings me songs and she dances with me too and she holds my hands and we run in a circle and we shout yoo-hoo and we laugh and we laugh till we hold our stomachs and fall onto the city. My Aunt Maggie is quiet and she's always busy. Moving ornaments and straightening pictures and wiping under cups when there's nothing there to wipe. She never sits her fat arse down getting on everybody's fucking nerves. That's what my Uncle Malachi says. But she doesn't when she's on her own with me. You only have to look at my Aunt Maggie to know that all she wants is to be happy and for everybody to be happy together. And I know, I know, I know this is true for definite and not because she's told me. No, it's because I can see it in every one of her wipes. 
and I know it with all the tingles on my arm because I want that too. But there's only us that does. Nobody else. So I hide it and so does she. But not when she's on her own with me. I'm going to tell you a little secret. And I've never told anyone this before. When we're on our own, my Aunt Maggie holds me in her arms and she hugs me tight to her and she doesn't let go and I never want her to. I want to stay there until I die, until we die together. And today, right, today, she says to me, she says to me, Stevenson, she says, Stevenson, I love you. And I'm not making it up. I didn't see it on the TV or anything. My Aunt Maggie loves me. Me, me, she does, she does, she does. And I know, I know, I know, because when she said those words to me, my heart hurt and my eyes stung and I felt so sick that my stomach tried to leave me and go to her and stay with her forever because I can't. I wish my Aunt Maggie was my mummy. I wish I'd grown inside her tummy and that I could remember being held by her all day long. I wish she'd leave Uncle Malachi and take me with her and we, we could run away together. And when I grow up, I can marry her and it doesn't matter that she's older than me um, or that she will be older because she's older than me now and it doesn't matter. And I'll keep her safe and I'll never hurt her and she'll give me hugs every day and we'll be happy forever and ever. That's the first time. bit more cheerful. This one I decided to make the book a wee bit funnier. Because uh, yeah, you can only take so much heartache, can't you? Um, okay, this is called... Uh, I haven't read this in years, actually. And you remember this. this um, Mal- it's called Malibu Barbie Christmas. Okay, This is how I find the end of my book. Fintan and Shifra are awake in Ma's bed. Ma went downstairs about half an hour ago, getting things ready. Not that there will be much this year. Can we go down now, says baby Shifra. They still call her baby even though she's not even. No, says Fenton, sure mommy will be talking to Santa. He's got to drink his whiskey and feed Rudolph some mashed potatoes. I read in a book that he's supposed to get carrots, says Shifra. Was it one of those English books, says Fenton. He tuts and shakes his head. What have I told you before about the English? They know nothing, she says. Correct, says he. Now, those in the know know that Rudolph always eats the local cuisine. He's like one of them travelling food critics off the TV. He loves going to India. Friggin' adores it over there. But he's always jeed up about coming to Ireland because he says he loves mummy's mash. It's all the best in the whole world. Does he think, says she, would I lie to you, says he. She doesn't answer. She doesn't believe a word that comes out of anyone's mouth since Da left. Except Fintan's and only sometimes. Fintan, on the other hand, has been in his element since his Da left. Now him and she forget to stay in with Ma in the double bed. Uh, Ma says it's because it lets Big John have a room to himself without the kids, especially after the night he got so drunk he pissed in the wardrobe thinking it was the toilet. You'd think at 16, Ma said, he'd have learned to handle his drink. (laughs) Anyway, 
Maz only let on that's why um, she has them there to share the bed with her. Like Fenton lets on to baby she for the sh- Santa's still real. He knows he's not because Da told Fenton when he helped carry the drunk up to bed last Christmas Eve. Really, Ma wants the kids to sleep with her because she can't sleep when she's on her own. She, showed, she told Ginny, the tick woman, when she, came, she called to collect the money for the book that she keeps. Ginny told Ma she's holding on. Otherwise, why is she still wearing that ring? That's when Ma started twisting it on her finger and she hasn't stopped since. She does it when she's watching TV. She does it in bed at night. She even does it in the bath, because Fenton saw her when he came in and sat in the toilet doing his spellings the other day. He doesn't like leaving Ma on her own for one wee minute. Can we come down now, Fenton, says baby Schieffer. Do you want Sandy to get drunk by belting that whiskey into him? Sure, he'll be knocking down chimneys from here to Collybacky, says Fenton. Wee Schieffer sucks on Ma's old hairbrush. It's an absolutely disgusting habit that turns Fenton's stomach and he's been trying to get her off it but she squeals the place down if his hand invades the same airspace as that hairbrush. She's promised to throw it in the fire today if she gets a Malibu Barbie with a swimming pool, a diving board and a changing room. You're more likely to see St. Patrick flying by our house on a motorbike. Ma hasn't two pennies to rub together. And it's not like Big John's going to give her any money. He can't even get the dole because he's supposed to be at school. And he's just a waster like my dad. Baby Schieffer wiggles, which is not a good sign. She started to wet the bed. Fitton sticks his hand under her bum to check. Dry as a bone. Good girl, he says, like he's proper daddy. I'm holding it in for Santa, she says. Santa's going to be very proud of you, Schieffer. And I am too, says Fenton. Santa's been mash out from down the stairs, and even though there's be, there'll be frig all for him down there, Fenton's heart thumpers anyway. And the look on Wee Schieffer's face is like 56 Christmases and a Halloween rolled into one. They leap to the open door, and they literally sprout wings and fly down the stairs. Going into the living room, the two stop dead. If synchronised jaw-dropping was an Olympic sport, they'd be gold medalists. Three mountains of presents flagged with three kids' names at the summit. There's a, mar- a moment's pause as Fenton squeezes Wee Schieffer's hand, then they both vomit in like they were diving into ba- Barbie's Malibu pool. Fenton couldn't even enjoy be- baby Schieffer's happiness because there was just no more happiness left in the world for him to feel. Kill me now, God, thought Fenton. It's all downhill from here. And at that moment, it occurred to him, his ma... He looked at his ma frowning in figure-it-outfulness. How could... And Big John falls in. Jesus, the scream of you. Who's dead, says he. Then sees his mountain of presence and his eyes pop out like a cartoon coyote's. Sweet mother of Jesus. Did you win the lottery, he says, picking up his iPad. He gets lost in plugging and tapping. The four beamers. That's the McGuinness family right now. Fenton looks at his ma... His, her smile isn't in her eyes. He watches her twist her ring, then sees there is no ring. She's twisting skin where a y- ring used to be. Thank you. Thank you very much to both of you. And I'm uh, very glad that 
the gatekeepers did not stop you and you both got published. But I wondered um, uh, if you both, and, and Aaron, if you'll be able to chime on, in on this as well, if, if you think um, working class writers have a, a narrative around their work, if they're kind of if publicised or marketed in a different way, or, or if editors are kind of not treating them differently, but if there's kind of certain things that perhaps wouldn't be done with, say, middle-class writers. Have you, have you experienced that or known writers who have? Or? I've certainly heard that. that um, the, uh, I said it in the article at the weekend, that there is a presumption that there is a, uh, a working-class story that is, is allowed to be told, and that is, uh, you know, rags to riches, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps or you know grim tower block in doncaster or you know whatever you know there's there's certain stories that are expected to come from working class writers and um even then they may be filtered through a middle class lens um what we hope as working class writers is that we can write anything the way middle class writers can write anything if we want to write science fiction if we want to write historical fiction whatever we want to write we should be able to inhabit a space that is not our own story constantly um, explored and constantly put out there as though that's the only thing that we have to say. Obviously, if we're writers, uh, we imagine, and sometimes we will imagine way beyond our own story and our own narrative. Um, And that's what we, as working-class writers, want to do. We want to have the same uh, freedom of expression as artists as any other writer does. Mm. Well, I think, um, just to come at it slightly... Um, different um, direction, but you know, I, f- I feel a responsibility um, mm. to, to write w- working class voices and tell working class stories. I feel that you know, in a world where you know, you can only have one working class writer at a time, or you know, one black writer at a time. Or it, it, I, when I worked in comedy, you know, twenty odd years ago, you know, you can only have one funny woman at a time and, and one black comedian at a time, you know, and you just couldn't have anyone else. And um, one of the reviews from my book um, spent half of the review saying, but this is just like this other book I read about a poor kid in Ireland. And it didn't matter that it was, one was in Dublin, one was in Belfast, one was set during the Troubles and one was, wasn't. And it didn't matter that it was 20 years apart, that the book was actually written 20 years later, but also set. It didn't, none, of, none of those things matter because we, we've already read the, 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 wee, the wee Irish poor boy story. So we can't have another one of those for about another 50 years till we've sort of forgotten that one. Um, and I just find that like half of the review was about that, and I find that so offensive, you know. And so I think there's so many traps um, um, around that. But So there's two points, but I also think, you know, when... Um, yeah, I feel a responsibility for... Um, you know, there, there are people that... From my community, my brothers and sisters, if you like, yeah, um, yeah, that um, don't have a voice, you know, and so I feel a responsibility to, to, to articulate their lives and um, their worries and um, in, a, in a nuanced way and in a way that justifies, in some strange way, that, that, mm-hmm. that they, are, they are worthy of our attention, they are worthy of our, our art. And um, and to try and sort of um, break down some of those um, preconceptions about you know the 
the, the ugliness of working class life, for example, you know, and uh, the, the, the dreariness of it and on all of those things and to celebrate the, the laughter and the love and the, um, and, uh, the, the, the sort of raw uh, living and humanity that goes on uh, and when, when you're in those environments. And um, so, the, so, yeah, I feel a responsibility around that and, and uh, that uh, leads me to those topics and subject matters. I, I don't know if I can really comment as eloquently on, on this particular topic, but I, I do think that, it, that if we accept that people who have a particular set of experiences in their life will approach the world in slightly different ways, and, and the, the way that, that they view the world will be different regardless of the issue that we're talking about, then I think those voices matter regardless of where they come from. Uh, and, it, and it occurs to me that, that what, when we're dealing with particular problems that we are uh, in our society and others around the world, that, that we're in need of some fresh voices, that we're in need of some new perspectives to some of the challenges that we have. And it, and it might be that, that some of those people that we really need to hear from right now are, are people who have had um, sometimes difficult economic experiences when they were growing up. Sometimes they weren't so difficult, but they still fall within this remit of, of, of living within working-class communities. And, and so for me, I think there's real value in just opening up the space that we have particular perspectives on all of the things that matter to all of us. How, I mean, how do we go about opening, opening those spaces up? Is it that we need... Is it that, I mean, you mentioned earlier that people are, are writing regardless of, of kind of class, but they're not getting published. Is it that we need to change the, the gatekeepers? Is it that we need to elevate the voices we already have to kind of, you know, show kids from working class backgrounds, authors from working class backgrounds, so they can aspire and know that they have, as you said earlier, a seat at the table? What kind of is there one thing that each of you would kind of recommend or or like to see can i jump in just before we get to that to make a a sort of another point that i think stresses the need for that Mm. which is that things aren't necessarily getting better Mm. on this and i think there's an assumption that we're making some progress that isn't necessarily true so if we look at kids that were born in the 1950s and compare them to kids that were born in the 1970s the likelihood of them ending up as writers hasn't got better if they come from working class backgrounds in some genres it's got much worse like journalism it's far far worse than it used to be uh, in the data that I mentioned earlier in Who's Who it's actually got worse you have more kids from Clarendon schools becoming writers than you did from earlier parts so I think that stresses the need for this opening up and, and so I just thought it, 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 yeah. important in terms of setting the scene for why that's the case uh, I have something to say on that as well, but I'll let you... I've talked too um, much already. From my perspective, and, and borne out by your statistics on who writes, it cannot be that more people need to write. You know, it can't be that more working-class people need to be writing because clearly they already are. So it has, to be come, it has to be approached from the other direction about who's getting published. And if you're talking about who's getting published, it has to be. You have to look at the publishing industry, make up, look at the makeup of the publishing industry, and look at what the publishing industry is publishing because they think they are catering to the people that buy books. So they think, who, who's spending 12.99 on the book? It might, might be, they might say it's female, of a certain age, of a certain economic status. So that's the people we want to appeal to and so we're going to publish those books and I don't think and I I haven't got the data but um, 
this uh, researcher that I spoke to said it's not true that working class people don't read. They do read, they are reading. And we also don't know what they're not reading because it's not being published. We don't know about the audience. We don't know about what people would read if it was available. So it has to be, the onus has to be on the industry to look for those different voices, to cater to different audiences and to include, allow people to see themselves reflected in the stories that are told. And I do believe they would then see a different readership and they would see an opening up of stories and narratives. And that's not only for working class people to see themselves. That is also for middle class and upper middle class people to engage with working class stories, engage with working class communities and alternative lives. What she said. Um, (laughs) um, I mean, I think, um, you know, I was thinking about when I was... one One of the reasons I wanted to write my book and what the reasons I sort of did it over such a long period of time when I was working full time and, um, and, and other jobs and, and really kept at it and knew it was my kind of something I was going to do was that when I was a boy I remember you know really falling in love with reading at, at, at school and um, you know and I remember I remember really clearly one day saying you know where are the stories about me I remember that, and I remember, I remember thinking, you know, none of these, none of these kids, you know, are anything like me, you know, and um, they live these very charmed lives, you know, and um, and all these nice people with nice, no, no complicated family scenarios and things like that. I mean, I think there are, there is more diversity now in, in, in children's books and things which you, which you can get, but I do think that the, the aspirational side. Uh, comes from being, you know, when you're younger, you know, and that the fact that you can translate the fact your your desire to be a writer and the fact that you are writing into uh, um, into being published, I think it's the, the step there that I that I think that, that that also needs to have a light shone on it is that you feel that you can. Mm. One that you you know that you aspire you know you have that aspirational thing, but but two that you feel that you that your work once you've once you've written it doesn't sit in a computer for ten years like mine did you know because I just thought who's gonna how's that ever gonna you know interest anyone and I think that you know when you you know giving people that sense to you know put your work out there there is an industry you do have a place and that 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 comes. I, I don't know how that comes, whether it comes at school or whether it comes afterwards. But people learning the, the the skills and the that there's a that, or maybe it's building a path. You know, leaving those trail of breadcrumbs, which what you do, isn't it? And that's what we we. I mean, I, know I have a blog for writers that I run for free, which is just every every writing opportunity I hear about, I put I put in this one place for anyone to come and find and and see. And then I set up a. a a um, mentorship program within the Word Factory, so um, uh, a writer um, gets um, uh, uh, mentorship for a year from a from a, from a writer, and then I know Kit's doing the, uh, the anthology and also um, and funded a, a a free place at Birkbeck, Bur- uh, isn't it? Mm-hmm. As well, you know. So I think that you do. I think coming from a working class background, you want to you feel leave that responsibility. That, that, that yeah. trail of bread comes for other people to say, no, 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 we did it. We're examples of that. We're not going to hide now and just go off and look, you know, eat bonbons all day. And, you know, um, <laughs> you know we're, 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 people have this idea of writers being really yeah. wealthy and successful. But um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, one thing, just kind of reflecting on that, this is maybe from a slightly different area, but I imagine that it applies so a friend of mine has done some work looking at cultural brokers in the field of comedy. And one of the things that comes, very, comes through very clearly through talking to those individuals is that there is an imagined audience 
And when, we, when we're talking about these communities, there, there, there almost certainly is an imagined audience whom many of the people making those decisions do not have direct experience or do not have much direct experience of, of living among. And, and that becomes a problem because it can intensify the scarcity because the range of possible things that you can imagine that particular groups or communities might be interested in is, is probably skewed, probably narrow, maybe uh, yeah, somewhat uh, stereotypical in some ways. And I, and I think being able to find opportunities to break out of that is incredibly important, but I imagine now with the democratization of writing through the internet that actually the, the sheer volume of people that are doing something, like you say on blogs, or mm. that, that actually it becomes, the saturation makes it maybe even a little bit harder now to find those people who aren't writing very publicly uh, online because they do not yet feel that they can put their things out there. They may be, it's staying on their computer, mm-hmm. but because there's so many more people that are actually putting it out. And I, and I imagine that there's both that imagined scarcity, which is very difficult, but then when you combine that with the saturation, it, it is an incredibly difficult mm-hmm. uh, thing that those cultural brokers are facing, I imagine. I mean, I'm not one, but I imagine that's really tough. Yeah. I'm, I'm conscious that um, we're running over a bit, so I do, want, I do want to get to audience questions, but just kind of trying to to bring it back round to the to the title of this talk how how can literature how can books help working class people and help solve poverty i know it's it's such a mass i mean we could be here for hours such a massive question but i feel like I, you i, I want to i can say something <laughs> to this i mean it's obviously true that it's not going to solve it right i mean on its own that would be ridiculous i think to, to kind of say that um but I also think that it's silly to say that it doesn't have anything to do. So uh, there's a, uh, a book that came out recently, and it talked about just following the financial crisis. A whole bunch of book groups emerged in the U.S. that were reading The Grapes of Wrath. And, and what happened in these book groups held in libraries and school halls were that these were the places where debt organizations came. These were the places that, like, Citizens Advice Bureau, the equivalent, would show up. And they would participate in these conversations and we don't know what necessarily emerged out of that, but I think, I do, I do believe that, that books, these types of conversations, literature can be a point around which certain activities can coalesce, um, that it can be perhaps a way of alleviating some of these pressures uh, for some individuals, but in a, in a very real and practical sense of actually just providing care and help to people that need it. Mm. And I think books can do that um, to some extent. I also think, I mean, I I don't think literature can solve poverty at all, Um, but what it possibly could solve would be poverty of experience and poverty of knowledge of other people, Um, empathy. We we all, this is not talking about middle-class people who I do not want to pathologise, we all uh, remain in a bubble in some way. We talk to the people we talk to, we populate our world with our friends and the people we find comfort with and, and have experiences with. And I think one of the ways that we can break out of that, and we do break out of that, is reading books that are science fiction or do tell us about someone's life in Iran or in Spain or in the 12th century or whatever, and it gives us a different experience of of the world. And I think if we had um, a more democratic publishing process, if publishing was made available to a wider group of people, we could read about other lives 
um, and then have more empathy and have less division in the world and have a much more uh, nuanced understanding of different cultures, uh, I'm talking about class culture, and different uh, ways of living, different experiences. That I mean, Great Britain has never been more... Uh, fractionated, more, uh, you know, at the world, in fact. People at each other's throats and and not engaging in dialogue that is anything like uh, helpful in a lot of instances. And literature does do that. Literature does get you inside people's hearts and minds and experiences. And even if you don't agree with them, it gives you a a starting point at which we can have dialogue. And dialogue's the only way to get past some of the shit that's going on in the world. I think it's a really hard question, you know. I mean, and, but Sorry. I definitely... Yeah, yes, so you should be. I think that it's... Um, I think it's a... There's definitely something in aspiration, you know. I, I mean, reading made me aspirational, you know, to... Uh, first of all, to, you know, there, there are lives outside of mine, you know. There, there are other, other people who, who have come before me, um, worse off than me, who have made a life for themselves even though they were trapped in poor education like I was and not giving opportunities that they, they, they got out of this situation and made, and made good and I think um, I don't think you can underestimate that for a child to, to know that those lives exist and that there are paths to follow so I, 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 do, I do think there's that and I think also you know knowing that, that, knowing that, and that, that, that you can fight for your place um, when there's so many um, people that will uh, tell you you can't uh, be this and you can't be that, and in school we, we were, you know, we were treated like we were stupid. We were told we were stupid, you know. And I think that you know, when someone, when you're reading something, you think, no, hold on, but I think like that, and hey, I'm smart enough to got that, and I got that story, and you kind of think, ah, you know what? And then I, there's this guy, he fought against all of these things, and he made, uh, you know, I'm going to, so it gives you that kind of um, uh, ideas about agency and power and your own. Uh, personal uh, strength and um, uh, yeah I, th- I think that I think that can help you um, better uh, acquire the things that you want out of life Lovely. right um, your turn so we have a couple of roving microphones um, where oh yep one there and one at that side please wait for a microphone um, and if you can introduce yourself by name um, and I would stress we've got about 20 minutes and we're very lucky to have the panellists we do so if, if we can make sure we ask questions rather than make long statements I think everybody in the room would appreciate that so yeah the person just here and then if we can get a mic to this person in the middle in the green top um, after you've asked your question yeah Hi, good evening. Thank you very much. I, we are from the creative industry. We think if the literature could help in, um, increase sex sensitivity of the humans for any level, at, at any level, then we can use creative skills like uh, TV, film, music, anything else to bring them up. Uh, you know, the, the scales make a different products for, for commercial side, then we can solve that the poverty. We can give the jobs to the poorest people. Okay, thank you. Um, the question here, yep. Hi. Um, yes, I'm a gatekeeper. Um, I've been a commissioning editor for 15 years and I'm now a literary agent um, for about eight years. And I have worked with a lot of working class writers. And um, that's because I work a lot of the time with genre fiction. And I don't think there are very few working class writers. I think there are actually quite a lot. But I think the literary or the publishing establishment overlooks them. 
um, in terms of snobbiness. None, none of them are going to be in who's who, but actually, if you look at the bestseller list, the paperback bestseller list, there were three sagas about working class life in the top ten bestseller list last week and that is not an untypical week these books are hugely popular they reach out to working class um, readers, a lot of the authors are working class writers and they talk about working class heritage and they make a hell of a lot of money for the publishers the mainstream publishers but they're not in, you know, for want of a better word, the sort of current publishing canon and those writers aren't valued in the same, they're valued in monetary terms, they get quite a lot of money, yeah. um, but they're not valued in terms of kudos in the way that literary writers are, and some of them really deserve it. I mean, I've got, sorry, one little episode. I've got an author who's, she, um, one of her fans died, and the family wrote to my author and said, we want to send one of your books on her funeral cortege, because that book meant so much to that woman who died about her working-class Bermondsey roots that... The family wanted her to be buried with the book. I mean, you know, okay. cry your eyes out, Julian Barnes. <laughs> <laughs> a question on the end here. Got to, and then if we can get the microphone to the back and then we'll come back to the front. Hi, I'm Nicola Solomon from the Society of Authors. Um, obviously agree with a lot that you've said. On authors' income, something I'd just like to say, which is a comment, the ALCS are redoing their survey at the moment, so if there are any writers in the room, we really, really want to get the evidence up to date, and please could everyone answer it. And just to say more widely about literature solving poverty, when we did our response to the industrial strategy, one of the points that we made, and I think that's perhaps what the lady was trying to say behind as well, is one of the ways that literature can solve poverty is literature is absolutely essential for fostering imagination in schools, and therefore well and everywhere and if we are concentrating on the STEM subjects and not on the arts then we're not fostering imagination and we become a, a country that can can make things but can't invent things and can't create things and one way and I think a really good argument about literature is if we're not fostering the imagination we're not going to grow in any of our areas so it's much wider than just keeping it as narrow as literature there are a lot of other things I could say, but I would just be interested to hear other people's comments on the panel on that point yeah. particularly. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, literature, as I said, you know, fosters imagination. It, it helps children explore the world, some worlds that they'll never see, helps them go places they'll never go, and, and obviously is, is a great tool for any child to um, experience other lives and experience other things, which obviously will translate into other subjects as well, not just the arts. Lovely. Is there a question at the back? Yeah, um, yeah, well, yeah I'm not sure if it's a question. Um, <laughs> I'm also a gatekeeper. I'm an agent. And um, I'm very exercised by this. And I'm really resp- I feel the sort of responsibility quite deeply. And I was very struck by what Dr. Reeve said about the level of... The, the, the sort of level of 8% of people wanting to tell stories, but more people writing, depending on... Uh, more people reading, depending on how much money you had and how much what your income was, and slightly devil's advocate. I'm wondering whether, when I'm looking at submissions for people who want to be published, the first thing I'm looking at isn't necessarily their story; it's often the writing. And I think any writer here will know that your writing gets better the more you read. And so it seems to me that it's about investment in um, at the very, very earliest levels of 
for children being encouraged to read and being encouraged to um, feel that reading is for them. Because without reading, I'm not sure what your, whether your writing will get past certain hurdles, hurdles that we kind of have to set up. I mean, Kit, you mentioned reading for pleasure, I think, right at the beginning, and at school mm. you didn't, didn't read for pleasure. at all, no. And I, I don't know if that's true across working-class uh, households, and I, I'm talking about ancient information here when I talk about my own childhood, but I had no, none of my friends read. It just wasn't a thing in my... Uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say my culture, but amongst my friends there were no readers. Um, and maybe, as, we, as Paul and I have talked about, it's, maybe that's why you become, in, certainly in some working-class communities, you become a writer when you're older, because there is... You, ha- you are reading more or you have got time to read more or you just get brave about what your interests are. But I, I think that's an interesting point about reading. Uh, there's definitely a correlation between the standard of writing and the amount that you read. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I'll just respond to a couple of the, the points, if that's okay. So I, I absolutely, um, I, I probably would agree. I, I don't think you could say anything about the standard at which those 8% across the, you know, are, are writing at, but it, it's striking to me that they are and, and are reporting themselves as, as doing that. And, and whether there's... I'd have to go back and look carefully at whether the people that claim to be write, uh, writing are also those that read um, uh, as frequently across the income distribution. I'd have to kind of pass that out. I think that's entirely plausible, and I'd, I'd be interested to sort of unpack that a little bit more. I mean, the issue about... Um, you know, lots of people who are writing but in particular genres or areas. And I think that's a, a thought that I had as I was sort of thinking about tonight, whether that could be true. Um, I, I haven't seen and I don't have access to any data on that, but it, would, it doesn't surprise me, and I th- it's great that there are. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say crime was well known. I, I sort of knew that there was some, some of that. But mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that points are, are really well taken and important. Thank you. Question at the front here. Right. Oh, if you can wait for a microphone, and we'll get you one, and then we'll go. Then we'll go to that side, and then we'll come to this side for some questions. My name is Joseph Amemo. I'm a barrister by profession, but I've written a few books. I'm of the considered view that if more and more successful writers, like our friends here, wrote books in which the characters and the scenarios are such that can you just lift the yeah. make the breakthrough. People who started poor ended doing well. Not only will that encourage other people, but it will also show that there's a possibility that if, even when you don't born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you can still make it. And I'm quite sure that if more and more writers, I'm quite sure there must be quite a few writers here, if more and more did that, poverty can be fought and if not completely overcome, at least partly overcome. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If we can go, yeah. Can I just say something about that? As well, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, my, my, in, in my book, um, you know, it's over a, a summer, and um, so, you know, the, 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 the character doesn't um, become removed from the, the, the situation that, that he's in. He's still as, as poor at the end as he is uh, at the beginning, but what happens is, is that he, he learns resilience, and he knows he's biding his time. 
You know, he knows that he, like, he takes on all of society's um, pressures and he says, I'm going to beat every single one of them and I'm going to be smarter than all of them and, I'm gonna, and I bide in my time till I can get older and get successful and get out of this dynamic, you know. So I think that's the same thing. I think it's that resilience for working class um, minds and, you know, spirits. Sorry. And if I could briefly say that that's one, that is a story, that is a narrative from uh, from being working class, and we see told over and over again, particularly in the classics, if you look at Jane Eyre, uh, Great Expectations, that is the familiar, that is the expected story. You used to be working class, something fantastic happened to you, you got some sort of thing from a great aunt that died, and now you are middle class or you're, you've been taken out of poverty and that's fine, that's, that's a narrative it is not the only narrative that we need to hear from working class writers working class, being working class is not something to be overcome it is something to be celebrated and something to be enjoyed, and there's lots of great things about it and if you want to get out of it that's great and there's lots of roots, but it is not the only story about being working class and we see it told over and over and over again, from the classics and still today, and it's not you know, I would say that's great. That's a story. It's not the story about being working class. Okay, great. Um, we've got quite a few hands up, so if we can keep the questions short and snappy. So there's a microphone over there. Yep. Yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in talking about the relationship between race and class because often when we talk about the working classes, we're talking about the white British working classes. And so we're talking about um, people being disadvantaged in terms of access to publishing, for example, where we know that there's a big issue with people of colour who haven't had historically much access to um, publishing. So, 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 yeah, so I really want to ask, I suppose, Kit about this distinction about talking about the working classes, people assuming you're talking perhaps about the white working classes, except you're not. So then that makes it a bit more complicated. And then the relationship between the struggles that people of colour have in terms of publishing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's compound disadvantage. So if you have the disadvantage of uh, race and racism, and uh, perhaps if you're disabled, and if you're working class, and if you're from the gay community, there's the intersectionality, which I know is a dirty word, but all those compound things that play against you if, if you are working class. And, it, you know, we use the term working class. It's working classes. There is not a working class. There are working classes. There are work, working class groups. And that's by no means a homogenous group. And there's by no means the same politics or the same experiences or the same expectations from those groups. And there is also, when people talk about the working class, there is under the working class. There are classes of people who haven't worked for generations. They are the non-working class, underclass, subclass, call it whatever you like, they're all bad words. But it means people that don't... I can remember when I was a child, working class was posh. There were people that went on holiday for a week every year. They were a lot posher than me. They were still working class. So there's lots of strata within working class. And race is definitely one of the things that will compound on your class to make your experience even more difficult, make it even more difficult to get published and even more difficult for your story to be recognised and your story to be celebrated. Right, there's someone with a microphone on this side yet? Hi, it's um, Vivian Hassan-Lambert, aspiring author. And um, I'm wondering how, how hopeful you are because with the demise of libraries and I, I think maybe with data analysis that maybe people are reading less and less texts like books or on Kindles or whatever. Um, so we're, 
and young people are reading just things on computers, uh, websites. So where do the stories come in? Where does fiction come in? Um, how, how are we going to get people reading more and then aspiring and wanting to write? So what thoughts do you have about that? Can I, I'll quickly say, I'll shut up, I know I've been talking too much, but I can just, uh, talking about hopefulness, I'm extremely hopeful about change. I've never seen so many people engaging in this question, and, and I get lots of messages, I get lots of, um, you know, not just from working class people saying thank you for saying what you've said, but from people generally saying, um, you know, I want to do something about it, I want to help I, want, I, I look at myself in the, within the industry and think I could do things differently. So I'm extremely hopeful. I think there's a great capacity and appetite and energy for change. Just very briefly to the point about, I mean, in reading in general, at, at least the stuff that I see suggests parents really take very seriously across, across the class strata now, uh, encouraging their kids to read for pleasure. And so... I also feel a little bit optimistic. I mean, I think certainly the industry is changing and how we're engaging with text is changing, but, but the idea that, that people are trying to um, cultivate that is still something I think we see very, very widely. So. I know I'm not really supposed to have an opinion as the chair, but um, I, think, I think, and Kip kind of brought this up right at the very beginning when we were talking about what literature is and what books are and people reading graphic novels and I don't I think lots of kids are reading online but that's not a bad thing it's not a bad thing that they're consuming vast amounts of of literature on different platforms to what we would have consumed when we were younger but that's enough for me so there's a microphone over there Hi there. Um, I, a lot of the conversation is focused on the shortcomings of the publishing industry, and I was wondering if the panel thought that there were policy interventions or initiatives that governments can implement to diversify the authors that we tend to see? That the government can do? The governments, yes. I, I think yes, actually. I'm going I'm to throw my hat. I'm just going to be bold. You know, it, it, it doesn't... We do lots of redistribution. Like the, the government does lots of things to say, you know, there are some people that have more opportunities than others. And it, and it wouldn't be, in my mind, a, 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 an out of, the, a kind of out of the realm of possibility to have some state-funded grants for writing workshops, the same way that we used to have grants for drama schools or music schools, that there are opportunities that... that the government could take up. I mean, we know some of the problems and, and there are things that I think government could do to provide opportunities for people that might struggle to access those things ordinarily. I don't think that... I mean, I could be completely wrong, but that doesn't seem like a crazy idea, nor one that would have no impact. OK, we have five minutes, so this is what we're going to do. There's a person with a microphone already there, and we're going to go back to the person with the hat there and then the person in the green top here. In five and I think that's all we have time for, but if we can squeeze more in, I, I will try. So let's go, start with you. Yep. Um, why do you think that literature sounds so elitist as a word? And do you think that that's part of the reason why people might say, no, it can't solve poverty? Sorry, I missed the second part. Do you think, because literature sounds so elitist, do you think that's why people might answer, no, literature can't solve poverty? It's possible, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I certainly, for me, in my in my generation, you know, and and my background, you know, that you know that word was very intimidating, you know, um, and I, you know, and I call, you know, 
I, I, I'm a writer, you know, and I write books. You know, that's, that's what I do. And I don't know what my next book will be or my next story will be. But I've written also for the theatre and I've written um, short stories and I've written um, novels. So, so I've, my um, writing experience is quite fluid. So to, to, to just say that, um, that I'm an author, that doesn't really suit when I write plays. So if I say when I write comedy, it doesn't really suit either. So, so I prefer that kind of global term of being a writer and therefore it takes me out of that I don't feel like I need to use literature either you know um, so because I do think that it definitely was one of the hurdles and I think if you can't jump over it then you just you know play a different game you know and you, even if it's out in your, in your head you know you're playing your own game with your own rules with your own terminology and you just set it up you know dig your own hole you know and, uh, and uh, find water there I think I, I, I would be very brief I mean for me it's actually uh, you know when I think about poverty, I think of like th- things to do with finances. And as, as important as books are to me, like if you were going to ask me which of those two problems I'd want to solve first, I just want I want people to have enough money to eat yeah. and enough money to pay their rent. And I think that matters first and foremost. And then we can worry about some of these other things. Okay. Yeah. Over there. Okay. Thank you. Um, hi, Paul. Um, this question is perhaps just kind of chiming on what Paul said earlier about the idea of the spoken word element of that not really being given the credence as equally put on the same pl- uh, plateau as, as literature, especially for a particular group of colored young kids. I, I do a lot of work with young people, especially young people in gangs and in prisons. And the first book I ever read was a Tupac poetry book. And actually in that is some incredible gems and incredible um, uh, ways of expressing self, especially from black masculinity perspective. And I just feel like within the educational system, this question we talk about solving problems of poverty with literature, it's, I feel like there's not a, or the question is, do you think there's enough being done to change the actual landscape of the way literature or poetry or even the ability to use written text or the ways in which colloquial nuances are also used as a credible form of expressing oneself in those kind of spaces where therefore when those kids get older they see that actually the way we express ourselves and the things that are the reality to us are equally appreciated as literature and I think in that regard would start to open up the um, the aspirational aspects that you mentioned if from a, from a grassroots perspective the idea of literature is actually um, shown to express the diversity that exists within the society that we live in do you think enough work is being done from that perspective well I, I mean I, first of all I think you're absolutely right and I think you know so um, if there wasn't a question at the end there I mean I was just going to sort of say yes um, until you said <laughs> is there nothing done no um, so you know and I think there's always more that can be done and it is a sense of value I mean I know someone touched earlier on saying you know um, if you're a working class voice uh, it, it, uh, and uh, is it given um, the same credence you know is it so, so oh you're not if you're writing it's for example in the first person and you're you're writing uh, a working class voice is it sort of is that nice literature you know it you know it, it's a rougher roar um, way of communicating and uh, not as sophisticated and, and poetic necessarily um, and I think that um, you also have those things, uh, women have that for example if they write about um, uh, emotions and, and stuff that goes on in their kitchen then um, it, it's seen as a kind of non-literary experience and endeavour yet when a man writes exactly the same kind of you know, day-to-day facts he, he, you know, he's seen as kind of this hugely amazing kind of um, a writer with great insight and um, you know Know, and that you know that that's a fact you know and I think it's the same you know um, across the board you know we there are certain voices we value and some we don't 
And class is one of those things. Race is one of those things. You know, um, uh, voices that are not um, uh, appreciated and um, and celebrated. And I think that you're right. I think that you know that has to happen early on. But it also has to happen. Maybe perhaps some people don't like prizes and they don't like that whole culture. But it is one way of evening out things. If you say, well, okay, well, we're going to consider uh, when, for this prize, we're going to open it up to short stories, to spoken word, um, poetry. We're going to look at you know all of these areas and consider them as, as the same value as, um, uh, as, as this novel, um, you know. So. Great. Um, final question, yes. Hi, thanks so much. Quick um, thing to say and a quick question. Um, I was feeling a bit left out because, as you can hear in a minute from my voice, I'm not a working-class girl. I'm a posh girl, and I grew up in a house which most of my tribe did with no books. I left school at 15, which we all did. We didn't have a library at school because we were far too posh to need to know how to read. And so what actually happened to us, we went to work at 17, and we did any old thing that we could find to do. The day when I got a job as a pub- at a publishing house at Jonathan Cape, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And the fact that I've gone on being a publisher and I'm an old lady and stopped now has seemed to me a miracle of how actually you can do it. I just wanted to say that because it's from a tribe which is dying out, thank goodness, but it was hard. The question is, I live in Leafy Primrose Hill. Leafy Primrose Hill is actually now an area of acute deprivation. Uh, I'm wondering, doing stuff I'm trying to do because people who live there now don't know about the acute deprivation, that I'm finding people from television come, wanting to make programs about it, People uh, turn up wanting to interview kids on the radio who'd be knifed and all this stuff. Does anyone think of commissioning? I mean, when I was a publisher, I used to commission people to go and write books about stirring subjects. Now, this seems to me an appalling image of England at the moment. The Primrose Hill is in every fashion magazine. It's this charming place. Actually, there are people dying on the streets, and it's horrible. So is commissioning part of the possibility of closing this gap that this question's been about? It would be, I think, if people had uh, a genuine interest in exploring some of those subjects and it didn't become poverty porn, Mm. where we hold up these other lives and say, ooh, you know, look how terrible they are, look what they eat, look what they wear to get married in, look how they go to school, look how fat they are, look how they hoard... And we do see representations of working-class lives on telly, and that's normally what it ends up with, looking down our noses, all of us collectively, at these other lives uh, without looking at why and without looking at uh, alleviating and and very often with disrespect. So I think, yes, commission the programmes, but make sure we commission the programmes for the right reasons and they're made... Sorry? That would be a joy. A joy, yes. Okay, Um, so that is all we have time for. However, um, all three of our panellists are sticking around, so I'm sure they'll be happy to speak to you. Um, So there are books for sale outside. If you want Kit and Paul to sign them, please purchase them outside and then come back in to get them signed. Um, Thank you to all of you for your questions, but if you can join me in giving our wonderful panellists a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, Kit, Paul and Aaron. I think that was a pretty powerful launch into the LSE Beverage 2.0 Festival. If you want to hear more discussions like this, then 
go to the LSE website and book for more of their events next week or join the Royal Society of Literature and you can come to all of our events for free. Our membership is uh, £50 a year or £30. Um, As Sarah said, the writers will be sticking around to uh, sign some of their books outside, so please stay and buy their books. Uh, And once more, thank you very much to all of our speakers. Thank you. Thank you.